0: One of the most adventurous and fascinating elements in the study of Torah is the fact that every verse, episode, story, law, and idea in Torah contains countless layers of interpretation and perspective. It's known, for example, that every single verse and concept in the Torah can be understood from at least four perspectives, known as pardes. Which is an acronym for four words Pshat, Remez, Drush, and Said. Pshat is the literal, concrete interpretation. Remez is the symbolic or homiletical level of interpretation. Drush is the interconnected level of interpretation in which you see the entire body of Torah and Judaism as a single organism. And many ideas are deeply interconnected and integrated. And then there is Sod, the mystical, the esoteric dimension of every aspect of Torah. There's also a fifth level which we'll get to later in the class. And this evening I want to take one verse from the portion of Ayikra. What seems like a simple commandment, a simple law. And explore it from these four diverse vantage points and then a fifth level and then see how they can all be integrated and understood with a new depth based on the fifth level let's not jump ahead of ourselves open up source number one please in your curriculum below the PDF let me just give a very brief introduction so you can understand the context Va'yikra is the portion that deals with sacrifices. Now there were different types of sacrifices brought to the sanctuary or later to the temple in Jerusalem. One was sacrifice of animals, bulls or sheep or goats, or cows. Certain types of birds, but then there was another type of offering known as menachis. Menachis were meal offerings. They were offerings that were brought from grain so the man or the woman would bring flour usually wheat flour sometimes barley flour the flour was mixed with oil sometimes it was baked before it was offered sometimes it was not but a part of the flour was then placed on the altar where it was consumed by the flames of the altar and offered as a sacrifice to God sometimes the entire meal offering was burnt on the altar sometimes the remainder of it Part of it was burnt on the altar, and the rest of it would be baked and eaten. Now let us see the commandment in Vayikra concerning these offerings. Please open up your curriculum to source number one. The Torah says this, All of the meal offerings that you will offer to God should never be made chametz should never become leavened you have to make sure that the flour that is offered as a sacrifice to god does not become chametz it does not become leavened if you bake it you have to make sure that it remains matzah it remains unleavened bread and the torah continues ki lo yisaktiru mimenu You should never sacrifice a sacrifice to God from any yeast or any honey. Yeast of course causes dough to become chametz, to become leaven, to rise, to be inflated. You cannot use any yeast in an offering to God. Nor can you use any honey, any dvash. You know sometimes people bake challah so they of course have flour and water and sometimes they'll mix honey into it to make it sweet they'll of course put yeast into it so that the challah can rise no yeast and no honey is permitted in any offering used and as all of the commentators and authorities explain what this means is you cannot put any honey into the flour into the dough you cannot put any yeast into it nor can you use honey in any other offering that's brought. No honey is permitted, nor can you offer yeast and honey independently as an offering to God. They can't be mixed with anything else, nor can they be used independently. And then the Torah continues and gives us an exception. Carbon further in the, continue in the first source. Carbon ratios takribsha as a first offering you may offer them to God yeast and honey. But but they cannot make their way up to the altar as an aroma, as a fragrance for God. What does this mean? Take a look in Rashi in the first source. Rashi says, first of all, Honey here doesn't only include bee honey, it includes any sweetness that comes from any fruit. So it would include of course date honey and it, would, it will include any sweetness that you extract from any fruit is considered honey which cannot be mixed in and used in any meal offering or any offering offered to God and the parts of the offering that are then eaten by the priests. But there is an exception, next Rashi Carbon Takrivu the first offering, you could use yeast and honey. What does this mean? So Rashi says, What may you bring from yeast or honey? Carbon There was one exception. On the holiday of Shavuos, they would bring an offering in the temple, two breads. This bread was baked. It was leavened bread in which yeast was used. This was the only exception. Usually every bread offering, every meal offering, only matzah, unleavened, besides the two breads of Shavuos. But they were not burnt on the altar. They were brought to the temple. They were lifted up together with sheep that were offered on the altar. The bread was not offered, was not burnt on the altar. The next ul bikurim rashi says come bikurim to beginning from shavuos when the new fruits became ripe in the farms and the orchards there was a mitzvah known as bikurim every farmer would fill up a basket with good delicious ripe fruits and bring it to jerusalem and offer it as a gift to the kohen in the temple in the holy temple what would you bring in this basket you would bring figs you'd bring dates of course, sweet fruits. So here too, for this new offering, the first fruit offering, you used honey. You used sweet substances, just like for the shavuos offering, which is called first because that allowed that allowed every Jew to offer new offerings from the new crop of flour, in order to bring any offering from the crop of flowers only after they brought. The opening offering of the two breads on Shavuah is from the new crop. This can be from yeast and from honey. But again, this is not used on the altar to go up in the flames as a divine aroma. This is the fact. This is the statement in Vayikra. Now, Jews always adhere to this law. They kept it. And in fact, we find a very interesting reference to it in a very tragic story. In later generations, in the Tanakh, in the book of Judges, chapter 9, we have the story of a man named Gidon. Gidon was a great warrior and leader of the Jewish people during the time of the Judges. Gidon had many wives and 70 children. Gidon dies. Who will now take over the kingship, the leadership? One of the sons, who was a half a brother to the other brothers, his name was Avimelech. Abimelech gathered around him, lowly, despicable people from the city of Shem, and he murdered his 70 brothers. Every one of his brothers, he executed. Only one remained, the youngest. His name was Yesum, and he escaped. On the top of Mount Gerizim, which faces the city of Shechem, today the Arabs call it Nablus, Yosam speaks to the people of Shechem who helped Avi Melech perform this coup, mortar, murder his whole family so that he can become the king over Israel. And Yosam presents one of those unique eloquent metaphors in the Hebrew Bible and the Tanakh. And I want you to look inside. Take a look at source number two in your curriculum right under the video. <speaking in Hebrew> Yoseb is on Mount Grizim, and he talks to the people of Shechem. He says, listen to me. And he tells the following story. <speaking in Hebrew> the trees needed a king. So the trees went to look for a leader, for a they told the olive tree rule over us the olive tree told them do you want me to give up my fat through which God and people are honored and I should go sway among the trees So the trees rejected by the olive tree went to the fig tree and they asked the fig tree, rule over us. And the fig tree responded, Do you want me to forget and give up my sweetness and my good fruits? And go sway among the trees. So the trees came to the vine and they said, Become our king. And the vine said, Do you want me to give up my wine which brings joy to God and to human beings and go sway among the trees? And he continues to say, So they all came to the bramble. They all came to the otod, which is a thorny A thorny shrub, a thorny bush. And they said, become our king. And a thorny bush, who lacks fragrance and lacks aroma and lacks taste and lacks personality and lacks character, said, of course, and started to make deals with them. And of course, Yosem was bringing out how sometimes political power goes to the most impoverished of spirits to the lowliest of characters. The olive, the fig, and the vine rejected it. The otod, the bramble, the thorny bush embraced it. At the end of the story, it's a long story, of a is killed by a Jewish woman who throws a rock on him and yet embarrassed from his legacy being remembered as the man who was killed by a woman, he asks his servant to Stab him to death. This was years later. I want you to focus on one thing. The difference between the verbiage of the olive tree, the fig tree and the vine. The olive tree talks about itself. Should I give up my fat, which honors God and people? The vine similarly says, should I give up my wine, which brings joy to God and people. The fig tree does not mention God and people. The fig tree says, should I just give up my sweetness and my good fruits. You see why? Because the olive tree, which produced oil, brought honor to God. Oil was constantly used in the meal offerings. Every meal offering, the flour was mixed with oil. Wine was constantly used to bring joy to God, so to speak, because every offering came with a wine libation. But figs are sweet. They're honey. They are included in the prohibition of do not use honey in any offering, so figs were never brought as an offering. So when the fig tree responds to those who want to coronate it, the fig says, I have a life. I'm not going to give up my sweetness and my good fruits, but it does not mention... It's service as a sacrifice to God. Now, here, Don Yitzchak Abarbanel, finance minister of Spain at one point, who left Spain together with his brethren in 1492 on Tisha the great Spanish and then Italian commentator of the Bible, Don Yitzchak Abarbanel, asks a great question. He says, why does the Torah have to tell us, don't offer yeast and honey? Does the Torah say, for example, don't bring a chicken as a sacrifice, or a duck as a sacrifice? No. The Torah just tells us which animals may be brought, and we understand that it excludes everything else. Why, when it comes to this area, the Torah doesn't say, don't bring apples and oranges as sacrifices? These two substances, leaven and honey, are uniquely and explicitly described. Why the need? Don't say you could bring honey and yeast. and Well, no, you don't bring them. This is his question. Obviously, the Torah is trying to indicate something specifically. You may think that you should bring yeast. You may think that you should bring honey. And therefore, the Torah is excluding them. But why? There are so many perspectives to explain this, and to explain the reason. Why does God care if the dough is leavened? Why does God care if the dough is sweetened with honey? Why does God care if you offer honey or yeast independently? Why? What is the reason for this? Let's begin with perspective number one. Perspective number one is presented by Maimonides, the Rambam, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon, 12th century. The Rambam has a book known as The Guide for the Perplexed. And if you'll open up source number 3, we have here quoted the Rambam. It's a long piece of Maimonides. You can take a look at it, source number 3. Let me present a synopsis of what he's saying. The Rambam believes that just as many other offerings and sacrifices that the Torah commands the Jewish people to bring to God, this too was meant to disprove and delegitimize the pagan cult of idolatry and worship. One of the pagan practices, for example, was they would give sanctity, they conferred sanctity upon bulls, upon cows, upon sheep. And therefore Maimonides says, the Torah says, give your offerings from these species of animals. Because what the idol worshippers describe as an abomination and something that will drive you away from God and from truth, the Torah is saying through this you will come close to God. This helped the Jewish people and the world eradicate itself from the pagan idolatrous notions that were so pervasive in human society. And Maimonides continues that the idol worshippers used to offer yeast and never bread. They also made sure that every sacrifice was covered and decorated with honey to make it sweet. They also never used salt. And therefore the Torah comes to revolt against this notion and says, You have to use salt for every offering. Every offering was covered with salt. Do not use honey with any offering and do not use yeast. Use bread, flour, water, oil that's unleavened. What's interesting is that Ramban, Nachmanides, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman, who usually when it comes to sacrifices and offerings he has some very serious disagreements with the Rambam with Maimonides. In this particular law, Nachmanides, Ramban, agrees to the Ramban. And I'm going to read that inside source number four. Open up source number four. The Ramban says, The reason for the prohibition against using yeast and honey. It may be that the rabbi and the guide of the perplexed, Maimonides, is correct. The Rambam says that he found in their books. It was the idolatrous custom to mix in leaven into all of the meal offerings and to mix honey into them and therefore God prohibits it. The Torah prohibits it. This is not how you're going to worship God. Maimonides' perspective agreed by Ramban. Abarbanel himself gives another perspective. What does he say? he says something cute he says if the priests are going to use honey so when you have your honey on your hands you come lick it you know people lick the honey and that's forbidden it's part of a sacrifice there's only a prescribed part at a certain time that you can eat and they might lick the honey so therefore the Torah says no honey the Bible says what about yeast he says when you use yeast of course you have to wait for the dough to rise so it may take much longer and it may be delayed until after the time they're allowed to eat it. Every offering had a prescribed time when the Kohanim, or the people, the Jews, are allowed to eat it. And if you're using yeast, it may delay the process. I'm giving different interpretations, all on the level of Pshat. The literal explanation for this prohibition against using yeast and honey. We discussed Maimonides and Achmanides, and now I told you the barbanel. There are other interpretations. For example, source number 5. The Askena This is the 13th century. The great authors of the Tosifos in France. Lufi Shamer HaKadosh Baruch called Karban HaTakir Melech V'Aleluen Mekablen Melech. God says in this week's portion, right after this, every offering must have salt. And these two substances don't accept salt. They don't absorb salt. Honey, they'll mix salt with honey. Nor do you mix salt with yeast. Another very literal explanation. There are more. Reb Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, source number 6 in his commentary, Hamek Dover. This is already much later. Now we're dealing with the, the 19th century, the Rosh Yeshiva of the Valojna Yeshiva in Lithuania. Gives another interpretation in source number 6, which you can read. But because of time constraints, I'm not going to go into all of them. But now I want to shift levels. We discussed a few literal, concrete interpretations on the level of Pshat. As I said, every mitzvah in the Torah could be understood literally. Pshat. Now let's go to the next level, Remez. Remez is the symbolic level of interpretation, the homiletical level of interpretation. The first is source number 7, Sefer HaChinuch. Sefer HaChinuch, the book of education, which is a brilliant brief encyclopedia of all of the 613 mitzvahs of the Torah, giving a summation of the mitzvah, its reasoning, and its laws. The Sefer HaChinuch, we don't even know who the author is, it was authored in the 10 hundreds or the 11 hundreds, assumed to be a man named Rabbi Aaron Halevi, but it's a very basic text for understanding the body of Judaism. And the Sefer HaChinuch has a very long piece, source number 7, which you can read. I just want to give you a brief synopsis of the words of the Sefer Achinach. He says this. He says, this mitzvah is a secret. The reason for this mitzvah is very concealed. I don't even know how to find a small hint to understand what is the reason you can't use Honey in the offering to God, and what is the reason you cannot use yeast in an offering to God. But, I will reveal or explain one symbolic idea. So that when people are starting to learn Judaism, they should realize that there is meaning to every law and every mitzvah. So don't come with complaints to me, he says. If you have questions, because this is just Some insight so people can be able to understand some meaning, but I'm not claiming that this is it and this exhausts the meaning of it. And he says it's basically symbolic. Every offering was meant to evoke within the person a certain sensitivity. Yeast delays the process. The Torah is trying to teach us do not use yeast, don't delay things in life, don't be heavy sluggish, lethargic be swift, be alert don't delay honey is of course very sweet he says people, especially young people instead of focusing on eating what is healthy they focus on eating what tastes good I think this is enough, this is good the Sefer HaChinuch says that the Torah is trying to say, don't delay things and don't pursue honey Focus on your health, focus on your longevity. Don't be so gluttonous that if it looks sweet and good like honey, run after it. This is why the Torah says, don't offer honey. It's trying to inspire a certain perspective. It's trying to create a certain sensitivity within the human mind, within the human heart. The Sefer Achimach concludes with another symbolism at the end of source number 7 and says, Yeast, of course, causes the dough to be inflated to rise, which represents pompousness, arrogance, self inflation, and honey, too. When you cook it, it bubbles very high and very heavily, representing again, on a symbolic level, a sense of, of pompousness, which the Torah wants us to avoid in our lives. Here we just discovered the level of remes, the symbolism behind this prohibition. Let's go to the next level, the level of Drush. level of Drush, the interconnected dimension, is in source number 8, Rabbeinu Bechaya. Rabbeinu Bechaya, great biblical commentator, mystic, Kabbalist, 14th century Spain. Rabbeinu Bechaya says this, Al source number 8, lechaper Rabbeinu links this prohibition against using yeast in an offering to the prohibition towards every Jew against owning or consuming chametz, leavened bread on Pesach on the holiday of Pesach. And he says that yeast and leaven represents the negative inclination. And honey as well. And therefore on Passover, yeast and leaven is prohibited. he continues at the end of number 8, source number 8, And therefore when it comes to an offering to God, you can't bring yeast or honey, because the offering is there to Atone for our sins. And the yeast and the honey represents the source of our sins. The reason why we're sinning. So how are you going to bring into an offering which you're trying to atone for your sins, through which you're trying to atone, these two factors which are the causes for sin, the negative inclination, the Yetzirah. What is war? It's like you're going to the mikveh, to a spiritual bath to cleanse yourself and you're holding on to a insect, a dead insect which brings you contamination while you are in the bath to purify yourself. When you're bringing an offering you can't hold on to the yeast and the honey. What does he mean? As many commentators explain, yeast is sour. Its aroma is also sour and therefore it represents the negative inclination which Makes a person sour and his or her behavior sour. How about honey? The Balaturim, interestingly, Rabbi Yakov Balaturim explains that sometimes the negative inclination comes with an appearance of sweetness. Temptation seems so sweet and delicious, and therefore it's also a symbol for the negative inclination. And therefore, you cannot use these as an offering. The Klayakar takes this theme and develops it at length in his interesting commentary on this mitzvah as well. Kleioka, one of the great biblical commentators, also following this perspective of Drash, the interconnected level which associates it with Chometz on Passover, and the Kleioka elaborates on this as well. We now go to the mystical level. The mystical level is presented in source number 9 by Rabbeinu Menachem Rikanti, one of the great Kabbalistic and mystical commentators of Torah. And the Rikanti actually quotes here an interpretation by Rabbeinu Bakayah, but this is another interpretation, the mystical, Kabbalistic, esoteric interpretation. And let's look what the Rikanti says in number nine. The offerings come to create a favor in the eyes of God and to complete all of our attributes and faculties. And therefore, we do not use things that are extreme, that are fanatically inclined to one side. Like yeast, which represents Midas Hadin, the attribute of sternness and judgments, judgment, which is hard, which is sour. Nor will you use that which is so sweet, like honey. We use things which have an equilibrium, a balance. As the Midrash says about the creation, God combined the attribute of compassion with the attribute of judgment. So what the Rikanti is saying is something very interesting. Yeast and honey represent extremes. Yeast represents the extreme of judgment and sourness. And honey represents the extreme of sweetness. And in life we must have balance between chesed and gvura, between compassion, empathy, kindness, grace, and judgment and discipline, between being sour and being sweet. There's a, there's a story that the fourth Lubavitcher Rebbe Rabbi Shmuel of Labavich was talking to his son, who at the age of 12, finished studying the entire Mishnah by heart. All six parts of the Mishnah, Shishya Sidre Mishnah. And his father told him that day, he said, There are people that walk around their whole life with a sour face, like yeast. Day and night, Shabbos and Yom, to weekdays and holy days, they're always sour. And then there are people who walk around all day with honey, like honey. They're always sweet. Always sweet, sweet, sweet. And he says, both things are not good. Somebody who's always sour, always in a bad mood, its not good. But somebody who's always sweet, he says, that's also not good as an offering to God. There's a need for balance. There's a need for an equilibrium. That's based on the Rikanti's idea. Now, source number ten. Let's look at the Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria, Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, sixteenth century great Kabbalist from Safa. Chara Arizal, Tam Isr Haktarasamu Keim Kol Adinim the The Arizal says the problem with yeast and honey is they represent din, which is judgment, severity. Katnus, on a small level and on a great level. Yeast represents a Small level of din, of judgment. Honey represents a great level of din, of judgment. And therefore, they're not used as an offering because they represent too much strictness, sternness, restraint, judgment, holding back. And therefore, we don't use them as an offering. Now you should ask the question we just read from the Rikanti and Rabbeinu Bechaya that honey represents too much sweetness and yet Darizal says it's din it's din de godless. <laughs> it's actually a greater element of judgment and severity than yeast the answer for this contradiction is presented by the fifth Lubavitcher ever, Rabbi Shalom Ber in his magnum opus Hemshech Tofresh Ayim Beis three volumes of Hasidic discourses that he presented over three years beginning in 1912 for the next three years and in the third section there he has a whole discussion on this And he says something very powerful. He says, what is the difference between dindikatnos and dindagadlus? There is, sometimes I'm angry at you, and therefore our relationship is affected and I hold back, and I give you a negative attitude, or I even penalize you. That's called dindigadlus. What's dindagadlus? He says it's the exact opposite. You give somebody so much, but they can't contain it. They can't deal with it. And therefore, it's also a judgment. It's also a distance because ultimately it overwhelms them. It shatters them. It destroys them. And he says, that's honey. Honey is sweet. You can't eat too much honey. You eat, so, you eat too much honey, it's just not good for the system. And you won't feel good. It's just too much sweetness. It's too much chesed. That becomes dindagadlos. And therefore, it can be used as an offering. It's interesting because there's a Talmud. The Talmud says, source number 11 Famous Talmud Chagiga, Yudalaram at Beis, Chagige 14b. Arba, Nichna Sulapardus, four people entered into the orchard of Kabbalah of mysticism. Benazai, Benzoima, Achir, Arabiakiva. Benazai, Hitzitzva, Maze. Benazai gazed at the orchard and he died. Look at the next paragraph. Benzoima, Hitzitzitzva, Ben hitzitz Benzoima gazed at the orchard and he went insane. Va love on him, the verse says in Proverbs and Mishle. When you're eating honey, eat the right amount, because if you eat too much of it, you will vomit. And then, Acher <laughs> was the third sage, he became a heretic. Rabbi Akiva was the only one who went in peace, and came out of peace from the orchard. And the Arizal explains how the words sa'or and vash, yeast and honey represent din, represent judgment. One is a small level of judgment, one is a large level of judgment, din the katlus, din the godless, and therefore you don't use it. Now, each one of these explanations, as interesting and as diverse as they are, requires more explanation, requires more insight. Let's begin with the pshat, with the literal. The Rambam, Maimonides. There's still something that we have to understand. If this is what the pagans used to do, then why on Shavuos can we use yeast and honey? And also, does it really make sense that this entire mitzvah has meaning and significance only because of the idol worshippers? There's no real objective value. What about if we live in a society where there's no paganism anymore, where there's no practices of idolatry do these mitzvahs become irrelevant the insight of the das that you need salt and honey and yeast are not salt absorbers also requires explanation because that itself begs for the question why is it so important to have salt and again why shavuos can you use yeast and for bikurim, for the first fruits can you use honey the Barbanel's explanation, they may lick their fingers, also requires explanation. How about discipline? Tell the priest that they're not going to lick their fingers. There were so many laws and details that were very intricate and rigid, but suddenly here the Torah has to f- prohibit honey all the way. And again, why Shavuos? Yeah. Why Shavuos? Can we bring yeast? Can we bring chametz it should always be prohibited if you're scared that the time will be delayed. What about the next layer, Remes, symbolic level of interpretation, the Chinuch's level? Great, he says that what? That yeast represents uh, being heavy and slow and you have to do things with swiftness and and vash, honey, represents the pursuit after, um, after sweet things that are unhealthy. So why does the Torah ever permit it? So the Chinuch says that on Shavuos, it's a public offering, it's not a private offering. And since it's not an individual offering, it's a public offering, the Chinuch says, it's fine, because with the public, you're not so scared that people will delay things, because they will remind one another. Granted, fine. So you found some rationale, but why the need that the Torah says on Shavuos, you really have to bring leaven. It has to be chametz. Why does it have to be leaven? According to the Chinuch's explanation. Rabbeinu Bechaya associates it with the negative inclination. But just because yeast is sour, does it really turn it into the negative inclination? I mean, there are other things in the world that are not very delicious. But it's yeast that is defined as the negative inclination. Why? And how about honey? Why is honey the negative inclination? Just because it's sweet and the evil inclination could sometimes appear as sweetness? There could be good things that are sweet as well. The mystical explanation also needs more inside the explanation darizal's explanation how about salt and blood they also represent din they also represent gvura, strength discipline severity in the kabbalah and yet they are used in every offering blood was a major feature in the temple they sprinkled the blood on the altar and of course every offering had to have salt there is a fifth level of Torah interpretation in addition to pshat the literal remez, the homiletical, the symbolic drush the integrated level, the interconnected level and so the mystical level and this is the fifth level known as Chasidism. 300 years ago Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem, Tov, Israel Baal Shem Tov was born in the year 1698 he revealed what is known as the teachings of Hasidus. Hasidus does not lend itself to an easy definition as the literal interpretation, the symbolic interpretation, the interconnected level, or the mystical level. It's rather a fifth level. And the fifth level is known as Yichida, as the Etzem, as the essence, which means this. Every person has four layers to their personality. And our four layers, the four layers of our identity, correspond to the four layers of Torah interpretation. The literal level of Torah interpretation mirrors our layer of nefesh, our concrete physical identity. The second layer of Torah interpretation, symbolism, remez, relates to our second layer of identity known as ruach, which are our emotional, our emotions, our emotional identity. Because emotions usually work as symbolisms, they're metaphors. Usually every emotion is a metaphor, it's a symbol for what's happening in your subconscious. The third layer of Torah interpretation, the interconnected level, drush, relates to our layer of Nishama, which is the cognitive intellectual self. The fourth layer of Torah interpretation, the mystical, Sode, relates to our fourth layer of Chaya, known as the transcendental or spiritual part of the human being. Who are you? Are you a physical being? Are you an emotional creature? Are you an intellectual creature? Are you a transcendental creature? Of course, you're all of them. Then there's the fifth level. The fifth level is known as Yechida. This is the undefined core of human identity. It's not defined by physical or by emotional or by intellectual or even by spiritual. It's the core of the self, the deepest level of self, which does not contradict any other layer. On the contrary, it constitutes the very essence and core of all the layers of human identity. It's the essence of the I, which is Yechidah, which is one with the essence of reality and one with the essence of truth. And this level is articulated in the fifth level of Torah interpretation, chassidus, which is the yechida, the essence and the core of every concept, mitzvah, verse, and law in Torah, and therefore it never competes with the other four layers of interpretation. Just like your very eye doesn't compete with any layer of self-manifestation. On the contrary, when you get in touch with your very essence, it gives a new depth and richness and vitality and dignity to all other aspects of your personality. Your emotions are enriched, your intellect is enriched, your spirituality is enriched, and your physical body is enriched. So when we discover the fifth layer of Torah interpretation, the layer of Chassidus, we can then go back and re study all of the four layers and all of the four interpretations and all of the four perspectives, but only with more depth and only with more richness and only with more energy because we get in touch with their own very essence. So Hasidis is not another layer, another level. It's rather the essence of every level of interpretation. So an interpretation with Hasidis and without Hasidis is... You have the interpretation, but it could be somewhat shallow. It's missing its very core, its very essence. And with Hasidus, you really get to suck the marrow out of that layer in Torah study. This issue as well, we have the explanation in the teachings of Hasidus by the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shemtev has a book, Keser Shemtev, and there he presents his interpretation to this verse, to this mitzvah. One of his great students, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef of Pulna, the rabbi of Pulna, has a book, Toldos Yaakov Yosef, and in the portion of Ayikri, he also represents an interpretation. The Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneyer Zalman of Liadi, the founder of Chabad, in a discourse on Purim, presents also an elaborate explanation to this kernel idea. Presented by the Baal And based on all of these sources, and many more sources, which you have in the curriculum, I, I, I wrote there all the sources, I want to present a Hasidic perspective, albeit briefly. But first we have to observe a strange piece of Talmud. Source number 12. The Talmud says in tractate Saita, Amar Barashi, Amar Rabbi Barashi, said in the name of Rav. Source number 12. Talmud Chachem Tzarek Sheyei by Echad Meshmoina Sheb A Torah scholar must have arrogance. Shmoina Bishminis. Echad Meshmoina Bishminis. An eighth of an eighth. Which means a very little portion of arrogance. A very little element portion of ego. Not big. An eighth of an eighth. Omer Rebhuna Beredi Rabbi Yeshua. said in the name of Reb Yeshua, Ma'atra Leik Isosel this little sense of ego and arrogance should decorate him like the husk of a kernel. Oh, my brother, the the lesbe. A Torah scholar who has arrogance should be excommunicated, but if he has no sense of self, he should also be excommunicated. Omer Ibrahim um, Achim B'Yitzchok, Ebn by says, Lo'y lo'y Nothing! Not an eighth of an eighth. I want nothing. Now I want to understand, I can understand when he says a Torah scholar has to have a little bit self, uh, what do we want to call it, I don't know if arrogance is the good word, but a little bit of where he cares about himself, about his ego. Not a lot. An eighth of an eighth. An eighth of an eighth, which is actually a 64th. <laughs> a 64th part. Fine, a little tiny Little arrogance, a little ego. But what does Rabbi Hunez says say mean when he says he has to decorate himself with this little ego like the like the husk covers the kernel? What's the meaning of this metaphor? What is he adding? What is he trying to explain? Comes Chasidis and says that in this metaphor, the kernel and its relationship to the husk, this metaphor captures and conveys the true depth of the message being communicated. An explanation is this: You see, religion has a major tension. it's a tension between two polarities and two forces: the notion of selflessness and yet the notion of selfishness. All systems really of philosophy and all systems of politics, and all systems of psychology struggle with this. On one hand, we see selfishness and uh, altruism as noble and endearing and we are moved by it and inspired by it and sometimes yearn for it ourselves and on the other hand, we feel the need for self-actualization and for the ego and for self-expression and to protect and maintain myself and my interests and my needs. In religion especially this tension is very powerful and in Judaism as well because on one hand Judaism teaches especially in Kabbalah and in Hasidism that, Ein oid that the only true reality is God because we all exist within the, va- within the divine and every existence, every physical and spiritual existence essentially on its deepest level is an expression of divine energy and divine reality so the only true reality is God and yet on the other hand you and I exist and we want to exist and we want to take care of our existence how do we balance between the two? It's also a question about self-confidence versus humility. And believing in yourself and trusting yourself versus surrendering to something higher than yourself. And it's this metaphor in the Talmud, in tractate Saita, page 5, according to the Altareb, Rabbi Shnei Zalman's Purim discourse that gives us a perspective. To grow and develop a kernel requires sunlight and rain. But sunlight and rain are also the greatest threat to its survival. If the kernel were to be completely exposed to its sources of nourishment, to the sunlight and to the rain, it would be scorched by the heat of the sun and would be rotted by the moisture of the rain falling upon it. Hence, for the kernel to survive, it must have a husk, a hard tough shell, which encases the kernel, which encases the fruit, and it bears the brunt of the sun's rays, and it deflects the drops of water falling from above. The husk shields the kernel from the sun and the rain while absorbing enough energy and moisture to sustain it and fuel its growth. Then comes the day of harvest. The grain has ripened. The fruit has matured. Now, It's fit to fill its function as food, as fodder, as seed. The husk is no longer an asset. Now the husk is an impediment. Now you break open the husk, you peel off the husk, you discard the husk. This is the depth of the metaphor in the Talmud. The Torah scholar needs an ego, but he must decorate himself with this ego like the husk to the kernel. Until the fruit is mature, until the grain is mature, you must have the husk. Afterwards, you have to know how to dispose of it. What does this mean? This means that in the beginning of the process of one's spiritual, mental and emotional growth, he needs to have that husk which we call the ego. He has to be able or she has to be able to feel that this journey means something to me that I could find myself, express myself, and actualize myself through this journey. In the beginning of man's relationship and service to God, one must be able to feel that this is making me happy. This is pleasurable. I can see how this can build me up and give me a meaning that I need, a depth that I want, and a joy, and a sense of fulfillment in life that's important. If in the beginning, the first thought that's introduced to a person is, you don't really exist. There's nothing but the truth of God. Just allow yourself to melt away in the all-pervasive reality of God. What will happen then is one of two things. Either the self will rebel, and the self will feel the need to run away and escape because it's self-destructive. Or something else will happen. Your self will become crushed, abnegated you will lose your personality, you'll lose your sense of self. And therefore, in the beginning of one's process, one must begin with the husk around the kernel. If one is exposed completely to the rays of God's sun, or to the moisture of God's rain, representing the heat, the passion from above, from the sun, or the moisture from the rain. If someone is exposed to too much of it, what happens? The grain, the kernel, will be burnt. It will be destroyed or it will rot. And there won't be anything left of you. After, however, you matured, now comes the point where your self is ready to transcend itself and become really one with oneness. Let me give an example of relationships. Everybody understands that the ultimate in a relationship is when there are moments, some moments, or or often frequent moments or constant, that you don't think about yourself. You really care for the other human being. You're completely dedicated to the other person. But can you begin this way? Can I tell somebody, would you tell your child, would you tell your friend, you know what, relationships is completely not about you. Remember, it's all about giving and giving and giving. If that's how you begin, then the person can marry a car, forgive me. The person can marry anybody. Then there's no person involved there. The person will be either completely destroyed in the relationship. First, you have to begin with feeling the self in the relationship. You have to appreciate it on a personal level. You have to appreciate how this relationship will enrich your life and will enhance your life and will make you the happiest and best person you're capable of being and will meet your needs. You have to be able to find yourself in the relationship in order for you to be able to lose yourself in the relationship. And then when you're mature and when you're secure in this relationship, can you really transcend that and then go beyond your own ego and beyond your own needs and truly become one and dedicate yourself to somebody else and the same is true in our relationship with God. If you want to be able to lose yourself in God, you first have to find yourself in God. Because if you lose yourself before you find yourself, there will be nobody who is lost any longer. Or that little self will revolt and schlep you down big time. If I can give a very simple example, and maybe on a very simple level, a very concrete level. Take a rabbi gets up in a synagogue where there are many Jews who are not observant, and they come Sabbath, they come on Saturday, they come on Shabbos at the synagogue, and the Rebbe wants to talk about Shabbos, and he gets up and he says, my dear friends, I see that some people parked outside, now you know God does not want you to drive on Shabbos, the Torah does not want you to drive on Shabbos, and God is true, and God creates you every moment, and therefore I'm going to ask you all to leave your keys here, and walk home. Because the truth of life is God, and the truth of reality is God, and God does not want you to drive on Shabbos, so surrender your schedule and your needs and your perspective. This is the will of God. What this rabbi said may be true, but how many people do you think will show up next Shabbos in his synagogue, or his Chabad house, or his outreach center? How many people do you think? (laughs) I think zero, maybe one. Instead, the rabbi gets up and says, you know, my dear friends, I want to tell you something we live in a society where there's such a gap of generations and such a breakdown of relationships and of family relationships I think one night out of the week you should have a dinner with your family and shut all the cell phones and shut the television and no movies and no ballets and no sports and nobody is running anywhere no internet and no computer you sit around the table You schmooze, you argue by lit candles, and you sing beautiful songs and eat gefilte fish. What did this person do? He spoke about Shabbos in a way that they felt that there's something in it for me where I am. Then they can grow, learn more, discover more, including the truth that we're here completely to serve God. It's so true in education. You start off with education, telling a child you don't exist. You'll break the child before you build him up. First you have to explain to him how precious he is, how beautiful he is, how great she or he is. How rich a life they can relive. And that's what God wants. Then the kernel can mature and dispose of the husk. Ah, now let's see the Hasidic explanation to this verse. Source number 13. Kester Shem Tov. V'zepirish kol soor v'chaldvash leisaktiru karbuneiches v'lamizbeach leyalu. Ha-remez. V'soor v'dvash legavuz shei martichim v'oilim k'meya gavuz shei makbiyalei Yeast causes the dough to rise, to be inflated tremendously, which represents a sense of arrogance, of pompousness, of self-aggrandizement. Honey, the Toldos Yaakov Yosef says, represents sweetness, my sense of pleasure and delight. You cannot bring an offering to God, worshiping Him through arrogance but the first offering for this you bring honey and yeast when you're starting when you're beginning your relationship when you want to start getting close now bring yeast and honey now the kernel needs a husk now you have to feel a sense of self and you have to feel a sense of sweetness How delicious it is. I have to be able to find myself in the experience of Judaism. I have to be able to find myself in God, find myself in Torah, find myself in Mitzvahs. But still remember, if you want to go on the altar and become a true offering, a divine aroma, then there you don't bring the yeast and you don't bring the honey. There's two stages one stage is where there is a sense of of self a great sense of self a great sense of yeast a great sense of honey that's carbonaceous, and that's why in source number 14 the gemara says in Gitin, in banov From the descendants of Haman, there were Jews who learned Torah and Bnei Brak. Haman, the family of Amalek, represents unbridled arrogance. And sometimes from arrogance can come Torah. Sometimes arrogance can fuel Torah, not in an unhealthy and destructive way, but the sense that I want to make my life into something. I want to live a good life. I want to live a meaningful life. I want to live a deep life. I want to celebrate my life. It's a notion of Haman, but from that could come Torah. It's the kernel to the husk. Once you're ripe, once you're mature, now you can go to the next level. On the altar, there comes a moment where you have to be able to transcend yourself. And to be able to say, it's not about me. I'm part of God. I'm here to serve God. There's a truth that transcends me. That's the next stage. That's the next level. And that's why this offering that was brought from yeast and honey was shvu's time. shvu's is when the Jews became a people. They just started their journey. And that's why it says in at the Torah, the Torah was given on a mountain. Which mountain? Sinai. Why Sinai? So the Midrash says because it was lower than the other mountains to represent humility. But if it was humility that we were trying to teach, why a mountain? Why not on flat land? And the answer is a mountain you must be. But the mountain must be directed towards humility until the time when the person can completely transcend their mountain and become one with God. This now, finally, allows us to come back to all of the four levels and layers of interpretation and see how this explanation of Hasidus gives a depth and an enrichment to all of the four layers. And very briefly, the Rambam, the Ramban. When the Rambam says it's against idolatry, it's not just pagan idolatry. On a deeper level, it's also the idolatry within us, self-worship. And yet, on Shavuos, you need a little bit of self-worship in the beginning of your service, carbon ratios. This explains the Nemo, so You need salt. Salt corrodes substances. You know the Dead Sea the of salt is called dead. It kills substances, and yet it allows food to endure, to be preserved. That represents real bittle, real humility. You think it's self destructive, humility, bittal selflessness, but really that's what allows you to endure and become larger than yourself and become eternal because you're not trapped by your ego. So it's the salt that's necessary and therefore we don't want the honey and the yeast besides in the beginning of your life. That Barbanel says they can. We don't want them to lick the honey. That represents licking the honey is taking it for yourself. It represents again a certain self-centeredness. And again with the yeast you may delay the time because you're not completely loyal to The prescription of the law because there is self-involved. This explains also according to the Chinuch why on Shavuos we want the yeast and the honey. He says it's arrogance, but this arrogance you sometimes need it explains according to the Rabbi Bechayah why yeast is the Yetzirah, why honey is the Yetzirah, and why sometimes we want it, it's not just a destructive component, it's the kernel of the husk which allows you to find yourself in God and finally it explains according to the Kabbalists why it's this type of judgment why this type of din which fuels the self that was usually not used as an offering that could become one with God besides on carbon ratios. So therefore, in conclusion, we realize that the Torah says in the beginning of one's relationship and a beginning exists on many stages. There's many beginnings. You have to be able to use the yeast and be able to appreciate the honey. But you also have to know to go onto the altar to become one with one. Here the person has to be able to have the courage to transcend themselves and leave the trappings of their ego and become one with their own truest core, which is Hashem Himself, God Himself. Have a wonderful night.